So basically, like, first you make the apples have sex, then you have to raise the kids. Right. And then you've got to choose which kid you want to keep, and all the rest of them you just get rid of. So that's when it becomes a little kind of, you know, you you want to dissociate it from humans at that point. (laughs) (laughs) This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. You know, when you go to the grocery store, you see strawberries, blueberries, oranges. Most of the time, it's one kind of each, right? Yeah, maybe there are like two types of oranges. They have red and green grapes. But apples, apples are different. Red delicious, golden delicious, Granny Smith, Gala, Fuji, Honeycrisp. The list goes on and on. So many apples. When I was a kid, we didn't have Honeycrisp. That's how old I am. So where did that come from? How are new apples developed? what's wrong with the old ones? That's what we're going to learn about today. A few years back, a new apple hit the market. It was 20 years in the making, and its launch was hyped as the biggest in apple history. Yes, apple history is a thing. And I got to talk to some of the scientists involved just as it was about to launch. I even tried a special sneak preview of the apple before it went to market. Now, here we are four years later, and we have an update from them on how it all went. Was it as successful as everyone dreamed it would be? We'll find out. Before we get to that, let's tell the story from the beginning with a co-host for this week's episode, my old friend Helen Zaltzman. Hey, Helen. Hello. What a time for us to join together in this very significant moment in Apple history. It's very exciting. And um, longtime listeners will recall you from our discussion about the term brunch. Yes, a controversial word. Right. And because you're a language maven, you host the podcast The Allusionist with an A. There's a lot to talk about with Apple names. We'll get into that. That's right. So, Helen, real quick before we get started, what is your relationship with apples? It's, uh, I'd say, cordial and platonic. <laughs> How's yours? It happens to be hot and heavy right now, I can tell you. <laughs> I was kind of mad on apples growing up. Then I developed an allergy to apples in my 20s. I'm allergic to pollen, so the spring I always get, you know, when everything's blooming. But there's this kind of, like, mouth allergy that you can develop where, like, I would eat an apple and half the time I would get, like, stuffy runny nose, itchy roof of mouth. It would go—then it would go away in 45 minutes. It wasn't that serious, but it made me not eat many apples. And at some point I Mm. I overcame it, and then I— in recent years have developed a real love for apples. A nice, cold, crunchy, juicy apple is like one of my favorite afternoon snacks. I'm very impressed that you came back. I'm so happy for you. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. So, Dan. Yes. Where shall we begin the story of this new apple? You know, maybe the first thing people should know is Washington State is like the superpower of apples. You know, more than half of all the apples in the country come from Washington State. This is Dan Charles. He's an independent writer and audio producer who focuses on food, farming, and climate change. He's also, by the way, a former editor of The Sporkful. Dan followed this new apple for years. Historically, just this just kind of emerged in the apple industry that there was one dominant apple variety, and everybody knows what it was. You know what it was, right? Red delicious. Red delicious. (laughs) (laughs) You know, going back... What is this? Almost 40 years. 1986. Three quarters of all the apple orchards in Washington state were planted with Red Delicious. How has the Red Delicious got away with it for so long? (laughs) Uh, You know, the story people tell you is that the supermarkets had no interest in anything else. That, you know, they they, they said we sell, you know, the green apple, the Granny Smith. We sell the yellow apple, the Golden Delicious. And we sell the red apple, the Red Delicious. Who needs anything else? Am I right that that one of the draws of Red Delicious 
aside from the fact that it was red, was that it kept very well. They were very yeah, durable. I, well, it lasts forever because no one wants to eat them. <laughs> and, you know, the Washington industry in, in particular is really dependent on apples that store well. They have these vast buildings, you know, climate-controlled. Because they, they, you know, they harvest, obviously, in the fall. But they ship apples throughout the year. Um, so that's really important for them. And, and what, was there a time when people thought red delicious apples were delicious? Yeah, I think there was. But there's also a theory that red delicious actually deteriorated over time uh, because, you know, sort of apple trees have this characteristic, like a branch of the tree will start producing apples that are just slightly different. They're called a sport of the original variety. The theory is that, you know, through this process, they actually were just selecting for color and so that and the taste actually deteriorated over time in that variety. But sort of skipping forward, Red Delicious is falling out of favor, and these new varieties are coming in. You know, over time, there was Fuji, there was Gala, obviously. And then, you know, Honeycrisp really kind of shook up the industry because here was an apple that people were, <laughs> consumers were willing to pay crazy amounts of money for uh, because they, you know, it was seen as a superior apple. Um, yeah, like, I'm not allowed to buy Honeycrisp in my house. Like, if I come home with Honeycrisp, my <laughs> wife will be, like, inspecting the receipt. She'll be like, if these were not on sale, you are going back to the store. Like, we are not, we don't, we don't make Honeycrisp money. Right, right. So, you have these new varieties coming into the marketplace, and they're selling, and they're selling for better prices. And it's partly because there was this innovation. The innovation Dan's talking about is something called Club Apples. And we're not talking about apples that sit in a VIP lounge, glugging crystal to music that goes inch, 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 inch. <laughs> Club apples are actually new types of apples developed and tightly controlled by cooperatives. Yeah, so the cooperative owns the license to grow a new type of apple and only issues licenses to a few growers for a fee. If you're not in the club, you can't grow the apple. You've probably seen one of these club apples at the store or the farmer's market. Pink Lady was the first, but there's also Kiku, Jazz, Snapdragon, Lady Alice. The names of these club apples are not generic plant names. They're trademarked brand names. So, you know, Helen, it's kind of like with pharmaceuticals. You know how the actual name of the medication is like 27 letters and it's unpronounceable? <laughs> but then the brand name of the drug is like Shazam? You know, I was shocked that apples are also like that. My big question for Dan Charles was, do these clubs actually produce better-tasting apples? I think there's a good argument that this has, this has stimulated the proliferation of new apple varieties that come onto the market, and some of them are good. There were breeding programs coming out with great apple varieties in years past, but there was kind of this chicken-and-egg problem. The growers didn't want to buy those trees and grow those varieties because they didn't think that consumers would demand them. And so consumers didn't have a chance to taste them. And, you know, you can understand why growers would be reluctant to plant new varieties. It takes a long time to grow an apple tree. They have to commit to planting years before the apple's going to hit the market. So they have no idea if anyone's going to want to buy it when it's grown. That's where the apple clubs do really help. They control how many growers get licenses, so they control supply, which helps ensure the growers get good prices. And the clubs provide marketing, they make sure that when the new apple is ready, there's a well-funded push to get people to buy it. All that makes it a lot easier for growers to commit to new apples. Now, the club concept isn't exactly new. The Pink Lady was developed in the early 70s. 
But it's only recently that club apples have reached the same level as the classics. However, while this revolution has been happening, the growers in Washington state have largely been left out. As Jan Charles explains, they're still stuck growing Red Delicious. So they're looking for a new variety to grow that'll sort of get them into this game of, you know, sort of premium, higher-priced apples. And along comes Washington State University because they started up an apple breeding program and they, they come along with one that they think is really pretty good. And Washington State University says, we're going to play this game too. We're going to play the club apple game. So they hire a, uh, a marketing company and they come up with a, a name and a trademark and the name is Cosmic Crisp. Cosmic Crisp. Cosmic Crisp. Cosmic Crisp. Cosmic Crisp. <laughs> we'll get more into the name later. Oh, you better believe it. They said, we're going to put a lot of money into marketing this variety. And at least for the first few years, we're only, only going to let growers in Washington State grow this thing. So it came along at the right time and under circumstances that made growers, you know, really go for it, like gangbusters. Washington State University spent more than 20 years and a lot of money developing Cosmic Crisp as a replacement for Red Delicious. They spent $10 million on marketing alone. Having another Big Apple will really benefit the state's growers. Meanwhile, the school has its own reasons for investing so much. They're going to be making, I'm guessing, at least $100 million dollars. They have put nowhere close to that into their breeding programs over the last 20 years. That's pretty good. $100 million on apples. You know, and that's so quick. You know, these other varieties like Honeycrisp actually took 20 years to, like, build a following. So is there a risk here? Yeah, there is a risk. (laughs) And I think the growers in Washington know that it's a risk. I mean, the risk is that they flood the market and consumers are just not overwhelmed and end up not buying the production. Have any apples really flopped before? I don't think there was ever a launch like this before. So the stakes are high. Growers in Washington have planted millions of Cosmic Crisp trees, essentially on faith. In part, they're counting on the big marketing push the university will provide. But marketing only gets you so far. At the end of the day, this apple better be good. Well, it's it's certainly an exciting time. You know, I think that we've seen for a long time the potential of this apple. And there's certainly, I believe, space for it out there. So I hope that consumers enjoy it as much as we have. This is Kate Evans. She oversees the breeding program that developed the Cosmic Crisp. I am the leader of the uh, poem fruit breeding program at Washington State University. I'm a professor of horticulture. Did you just say poem fruit? I said, <laughs> good one. Poem fruit, I said. So apple is a poem fruit, as is pear and quince and other similarly related fruits. Got so it. I cover apples and pears. So it, what, what's that word? How do you spell it? Poem, P-O-M-E. Helen, have you heard this word, poem? 
I'm very excited to hear it. It sounds like it comes from um, French apple, pum. It does sound like that. Yes, I, I presume that there's some relation between the two. But yeah, I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a word specialist. So that's why I'm here. All right. Is it connected to pomegranate? Yeah, pomegranate is, uh, I don't know whether, well, Kate would know whether they are connected fruit wise. But etymologically, uh, pomegranate meant apple with many seeds. Oh, look at ah. all that we're learning here. So, Kate, start at the very beginning here. When you are breeding an apple variety, what are the basic qualities that you're judging the apple by? Well, that's that's the, the fundamental question, right? What is it that you want in an apple? What is it that consumers want in an apple? Good textural traits, and that, you know, texture itself is complex. It's firmness, crispness, juiciness, all of those things combined. And then, of course, you have the effect of the skin, because the skin to the flesh makes a difference in terms of how you perceive the texture. Yes. And then you've got all those flavoral traits. You've got tartness, um, sweetness, aromatics. But also trying to combine that with those traits that would make it work for, for the grower and for the whole production line. So how well a piece of fruit will store in refrigerated storage makes a big impact to the eating quality of that piece of fruit in, say, May or June. And so that that's an important trait. Right. I, I like, though, Kate, that you, you separate. There's the texture of the skin and then the texture of the interior. Right. And for me, I, I think that I really want the skin to feel thin, but but yet still firm, so that there's like a snap when you bite through that skin, and then I want the apple inside to be very firm and crunchy. Right. But I don't like a thick skin. Right, and and nobody does. You know, it's not something that, that we'd be selecting for. Is there such thing as too firm or crunchy of an apple interior? Oh, yes. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Yesterday I was out walking my orchard rows with a student intern that we've got at the moment, and I was explaining about evaluation of seedlings. And there are certain, when you, you pick an apple off the tree, you've never tasted that fruit before. It, it looks nice. You think, oh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll give it a bite, see what it does. And you can't actually get your teeth in. That's too firm. <laughs> right, right. Is there such thing as an apple that's too juicy? Oh, too juicy. Um, I would say probably not. Coming up, Kate breaks down the science of how the Cosmic Crisp was born. Then later, we will taste the Cosmic Crisp. Dun, dun, dun. Crunch, crunch, crunch. Stick around. Ooh, advertisements. Yummy. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Last week on the show, things got a little bit rowdy. I enlisted the writers Jai Young Fan and Samantha Irby to help me take your calls. Listeners shared their hottest takes and most pressing food debates. I mean, I'm with your dad all the way on this. I mean, my, my kitchen has always looked like, you know, World War III. And <laughs> I think props to you for getting that thing clean in the first place. You get to choose when and how you put it away. I don't think that she has the right to micromanage. We also hear from a listener in Sweden who's in a years-long battle with her mother and her mother's partner about garlic. It's up now. It's a lot of fun. Check it out. 
Now, back to apples. And I'm joined once again by my friend Helen Zaltzman, host of the Illusionist podcast. Hey, Helen. Hello, Dan. So the Cosmic Crisp was first developed by an apple breeder at Washington State University named Bruce Barrett. He's since retired. Yeah, that's how long this apple has been in development. The guy who came up with it originally retired before the apple could come out. (laughs) It is really a job for the incredibly patient. (laughs) So Bruce Barrett retired, and in comes Kate Evans, who is now Professor of Horticulture and Head of Apple Breeding at Washington State. She's continued to oversee the programme. She's the one we were speaking with before the break. Uh, We heard about the traits they want in an apple, but how do they actually make that happen? The technology has been used for hundreds of years. So so walk us through the basic steps of it. Right. So once you have chosen your traits that you're looking for, the characteristics you're looking for in a, in a new apple, you've got to choose which two parents you think might combined produce offspring that would have uh, the, the quality characteristics that you're looking for. So in the case of the Cosmic Crisp, who are the parents? Honeycrisp, which most people are aware of now, that was its pollen parent or male parent. And then its uh, its female parent was Enterprise. And, and so Honeycrisp, we know, is sweet, juicy, crunchy, like it's a very popular prized apple in the U.S. What does Enterprise bring to the table? Um, Enterprise was chosen really uh, because it, it, of its appearance. It looks really nice, a very pretty apple. And am I right, one of the shortcomings of Honeycrisp has also been that it's not so easy to grow. Correct. Yes. Yes. Honeycrisp, uh, well, certainly in Washington, is challenging to growers. Right. And so so would Enterprise help to address that? Well, that was the hope um, at the time. And certainly uh, it, it seems as if we've achieved that with this particular cross. So how do they actually do that? Well, like all fruit, apples start out as apple flowers. When pollen fertilizes the flower, the flower makes apple seeds, which grow into apples. Do we have to put an explicit rating on this episode, Dan? <laughs> I think we're I think we're okay. But to do a cross, scientists like Kate take the pollen from one apple flower, in this case on a honeycrisp tree, and they brush it onto another apple flower. In this case, on an enterprise tree. That fertilized flower then makes hybrid seeds that will grow to become cosmic crisp apples. But in the early going, each one of those apples has four to six seeds inside it, and each of those seeds is different. Some of them might not make such great apples. And so, in the same way that uh, you and your siblings are offspring of your two parents, but you're you're all different, you've all inherited a slightly different combination of genes from your mother and your father. That's how it is with the seeds that are in the apple. And so you get differences in in those seeds. And the only way to know for sure which seeds are best is to actually grow them into apple trees. And trees don't grow overnight. In the end, it took the team at Washington State 20 years. 20 years to grow the trees, select the best seeds, grow more trees, select the best seeds, and so on until you have seeds that consistently produce the apple you've been chasing. But the work isn't over then. That's right, because as Dan Charles said earlier, a big problem in the past has been that growers didn't want to plant the trees for a new apple because they were afraid it wouldn't sell. Kate and Washington State University had to convince growers that this apple would sell. And that's especially hard with an apple because we all know about so many different varieties already. You've got a lot more diversity in the marketplace. You have consumers that know 
know that diversity. They've got their own favourites. You've got consumers that love Granny Smith. You've got consumers that love Golden Delicious. Kate, do not say that you've got consumers that love Red Delicious. (laughs) You have, absolutely. (laughs) Your credibility is going out the window here, Kate. Come on. (laughs) Well, you know, people buy them. (laughs) They're people who hate themselves. So so because of that, you know, you have to market an apple in a different way. You know, it has to come out with a name. It has to have some kind of market recognition, right, as, as the individual variety. So a new apple needs to stand out from the others. It needs to be memorable. And for that, it needs a great name. The naming took somewhere about a year, six months to really do sensory testing and come up with the name and then consumer testing, probably another six months. This is Catherine Grandy. I am chief marketing officer for proprietary variety management, and we have been contracted by Washington State University to commercialize the WA-38, which is now called Cosmic Crisp. It's a catchier name. (laughs) Catherine has been naming and marketing fruit for more than a decade. Her company is one of the big guns in this industry. They've worked on apples like Pink Lady, Snapdragon, Lucy Rose, and more. So could you take us through the kind of process it usually takes to come up with an Apple name? Sure. You know, as a marketing group, we look at what's the parentage, what does it look like, and then we taste it. And, you know, what's the flavor profile? Is it sweet? Is it crunchy? Is it juicy? And then we do sensory testing with consumers. Catherine's company brings consumers in for blind testing. Each person gets the apple and they feel it and smell it and then bite into it. And they share their impressions. And the company uses those impressions to brainstorm names. Catherine says there are some name suggestions that always come up, but that aren't as good as people think. You know, people love to name fresh fruit after candy. And we've had uh, candy cane, candy apple, candy crunch. And it's just like, you know, taking a fresh piece of fruit that's very nutritious and and calling it candy just or sugar this, you know, just didn't feel right. Another challenge with Apple naming, uniqueness. To qualify for a trademark, your name has to be unique. So common names like Red Beauty wouldn't work. Protecting their trademark is key to Washington State's success. That's a big part of how they make sure that anyone who wants to grow Cosmic Crisp has to pay royalties to do it. The last Big Apple was Honeycrisp, but the program at the University of Minnesota that developed the Honeycrisp didn't invest in trademark protection for it, and so lost out on a lot of potential revenue. With Cosmic Crisp, Washington State is trying to learn from Minnesota's mistake. They say most of the revenue will be reinvested into the apple breeding program. But all that doesn't explain the name itself. What was the inspiration for Cosmic? So at the consumer focus groups, somebody said, you know, this apple, the lenticels, the little dots in the apple, it makes it look like the night sky. And so they kind of started brainstorming off that and said, yeah, you mean like the cosmos? And then somebody else said, well, there's Honeycrisp is one of the parents, so how about Cosmic Crisp? I wonder if the sort of evolution from a name like Red Delicious to a name like Cosmic Crisp is also reflective of just 
a larger change in language and marketing in that, like, I feel like nowadays marketing is more evocative mm-hmm. and le- less literal. Mm-hmm. The, the way that you have, like, Gatorade flavors that are, like, not flavors, like Arctic Blast or whatever. Like, that's not, nothing tastes like Arctic Blast, but it just evokes a feeling. That's right. So I, I, I wonder if that's a larger trend. Oh, definitely. And, you know, in naming that apple, we're looking at, you know, what is our story and, and how can we make this really intriguing to the consumer? There's an apple called strawberry. How is that allowed? That's just confusing. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it looks like a strawberry. Maybe it, maybe it has hints of strawberry in its, in its flavor. Not good enough. I like that there's one called Jonathan as well. That's the normcore apple. <laughs> I think, though, my favorite might be Laxton's Epicure. Ooh, classy. Yeah, it's very fancy sounding. Hmm. But the internet says it bruises easily, Helen. Oh, no, no one wants that. All right, Catherine, before we let you go, we're going to play a special game. (laughs) You and Helen are both contestants. This game is called Apple Variety or New England Town. (laughs) You you ready to play? Okay. Ashmead's Colonel. Oh, town. I was going to say town. Ashmead's Colonel is an apple. Oh, Uh, Cumberland. Apple. What do you think, Helen? I'm going to go apple. Cumberland is a town. Oh, come on. Man, you guys are struggling. I thought I thought I was going to make this game harder. I mean, this is a game that I have played many times before because I'm very <laughs> cool. Next one, Lemonster. I mean, that's an England, England town called Lemster. Would they have bothered exporting that as a town to New England? Hmm. I don't think you'd call an apple that. So you're saying town. I'm going to go town. I, Catherine? Very insecure. I have no idea, but I'd say town. You are both correct. Lemonster oh, is a town. <laughs> We've it's, saved face, Helen. Yes, it's spelled L-E-O-M, <laughs> but it's pronounced like the fruit lemon. That's why I thought that one was tricky. Next one, Adam's Pearman. Oh, I'm going to go apple for that, even though it says pear yeah. in the name. Yep, apple. You are correct, apple. See, we're warmed up now. All right, now you're getting good. Now, now we're coming down the home stretch. Here we go. Baldwin. Apple. Apple. That one is both. It was a trick oh, question. <laughs> Curse you, dumb Pashman. Next one, strong. Apple. Town. It is a town. Point for Catherine. Ugh. Oh, I'm I'm feeling quite cocky over here. <laughs> <laughs> you earned it. You sound like you've got more swagger right now, Catherine. Yeah, yeah, completely. <laughs> one more for you, Apple Variety or New England Town, Cumberbatch. oh boy Mm, town (laughs) i i would say it's a town the correct answer is neither oh that's not fair come on cumberbatch (laughs) it's not a town or an apple variety it's a heartthrob then it doesn't belong in this quiz dan All right, well, that was a very fun game, Helen, but as I think we've made clear, the folks at Washington State are not playing. Yeah, this is the biggest launch in Apple history. In the first year, 12 million trees were ordered and 5 million boxes of Cosmic Crisp apples were delivered to grocery stores. And that was considered limited availability. But luckily, even before it launched, we managed to get our hands on some Cosmic Crisps. I chilled mine because I think the colder apples are crunchier. And now, Helen... It's time. It's time for the moment of truth. I understand... 
You already ate yours? Well, I couldn't wait any longer to understand what all the fuss is about. <laughs> also, I had to fly to Canada and I couldn't take it over the border. Oh, come on, Helen. Really? Is that really what the TSA is most concerned with? I got fined 400 New Zealand dollars for accidentally bringing an apple into New Zealand earlier this year. So I'm not taking the risk. So you're already a renowned international apple smuggler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, failed apple smuggler. Right, right, right. Okay, so so I want to hear what you thought, but let me. I don't want to be biased by your opinion. So let yeah, me let me take no. a bite, and then we'll discuss. All right, they sent me four. I'm checking each one to see which one seems most perfect. They're very perfect looking apples. Like you'd cast one of those apples in a production of Snow White. Yes, that they're they're round, but there's some variation from each one. Some are, some are have are more uniformly dark red. Others have more of a light red area. But then I do see. The cosmic, I don't know that I would have equated them to stars, but I understand what they're mm. saying. There's these little, I, I think freckles is a better analogy. Yeah. Reminded little, me a bit of a dappled horse. Yes. It is a nice deep, dark shade of red, which I find very satisfying. Eat it. Eat it. <laughs> All right. I'm going in. Mmm. That is very juicy. Very juicy. The juice is running down the side of the apple. And how do you feel about that? Do you feel like it's adding a level I, of stress? I, I would never say an apple was too juicy. I'll get my hands messy. It does feel like, you know how like um, the screens on devices keep getting brighter and brighter and brighter? <laughs> the, the entire sensory experience of this apple is just amped up and elevated. You it's know, a very good way of putting it. It's cr it's extremely crunchy, extremely juicy, extremely sweet and also acidic. Like it's just it's like a technicolor apple. I did think uh, before tasting it, oh, will any apple live up to 20 years of development? And then having eaten it, I thought, yeah, maybe. What I admired about it is that it's sweet but it's not too sweet, which I think is a hard balance. And also it is very crisp, so maybe if it was not as sweet as it is, then it would be a little sharp in one's mouth. Well, hold on one sec. <coughs> this is how he dies. Oh no! No, yeah, right. <laughs> no, I wasn't choking on apple. The 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 juice. The apple is so juicy that I had apple juice go down the wrong pipe. That's what just happened to me. Jeepers! This might be the juiciest apple I've ever eaten. At what price? <laughs> It's not worth dying over. You said it couldn't be too juicy, but... Maybe that's the marketing employ Cosmic Crisp is going after. The apple so juicy it killed Dan Pashman. <laughs> All those conversations happened back in 2019. Recently, we caught up with Kate Evans, the scientist you heard from earlier, to get an update on the Cosmic Crisp. Now, she's no longer working on the apple because, as a breeder, her work stops when the apple launches. But she told us the apple's expansion has been both exponential and unprecedented. There are now 21 million Cosmic Crisp trees planted in Washington state, and it was in the top 10 apple varieties sold by volume in the U.S. last year. And Kate says even though she's not really involved in Cosmic Crisp anymore, whenever she goes into her local Safeway, she makes sure the sign for the apple is facing outwards, prominently on display. And she loves it when she sees a shopper making a beeline for the Cosmic Crisp bin. A repeat customer is the highest praise. Special thanks to my old friend Helen Zaltzman of the Illusionist podcast. It is a great show all about language, including a recent two-parter about the word fat. They have a lot of other thought-provoking episodes, so I hope you'll check it out. Listen to The Illusionist with an A wherever you get your podcasts. 
Next week on the show, I talk with my friend James Park, who's written an entire cookbook all about chili crisp. While you wait for that one, check out last week's call-in show with Samantha Irby and Jai Young Fan. They settle your food disputes, including one for my mom, and things overall get a little bit raucous and rowdy. That one's up now. Check it out. This episode was originally produced by me, along with... And Sandy. Ngofen Putubwele. And... Harry Huggins. It was edited by... John Delore. And mixed by... Jared O'Connell. The Sporkful team now includes Emma Morgenstern, Andres O'Hara, and Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher Studios. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And this is Jeff Grossman from Redmond, Washington, saying, Eat more, eat better, and eat more better. <laughs>